Our Sunday morning series during this Christmas season is titled Christmas Guests. We're not so much thinking about the people who may or may not be coming to be your guests at Christmas. Rather, we're thinking about the people who came to visit Jesus on the Advent, on the very first Christmas. Last week, we talked about the shepherds. The angels appeared to the shepherds, and the shepherds came to visit Jesus. They were the first guests. Next week, we're going to talk about some not-so-friendly guests. We're going to talk about the soldiers that Herod sent to visit Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about the wise men who came to visit Jesus from the east. It's important when you think about the Christmas story, especially when we're going to talk this morning about the wise men, it's important to be honest about some of the things that we know and some of the things that we don't know. And it's important to be clear about some of the characters in this story. So we're going to try to wade through a few things on the front end. Number one, the wise men showed up sometime after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And I shared with you just a basic timeline that shows you some of the events uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born. The angels appear to the shepherds, and they come to visit. A week after his birth, he's circumcised. About a month later, he's dedicated. Then at some point, the wise men show up. We're not exactly sure how much time passed between Jesus' birth and the wise men showing up. I know that when you go home and you look at your manger scene, you probably have wise men there at the manger scene. And I know that some of you have heard preachers say, your manger scene is garbage. The wise men weren't there at the manger scene. Let's just be honest. We're not exactly sure when they showed up. When you read the Christmas story in Luke, which we did last week, Luke chapter 2, verse 16, it says that the shepherds found a, quote, baby, and that Greek word means infant, a baby, in a manger, right, in a feeding trough. We read this story in the Gospel of Matthew here in just a moment. Matthew says that the wise men found a child, doesn't necessarily mean infant or baby, it just means a child, could be a toddler, a young child, in a house. So one possibility here is that some months have passed since Jesus was born, and the family has stayed in Bethlehem, and Joseph has has found some sort of house for the family to live in. The wise men show up, and they find toddler, nine-month-old Jesus in a house. Maybe they weren't there at the quote-unquote manger scene, but maybe they were. Most houses in first century Israel look something like this, and in the bottom is where the animals would stay, and in the top is where the humans would stay, and it's entirely possible that when the wise men showed up, they came to a house, and the shepherds came to the exact same location, and there was a manger in the bottom, and there was some sort of living quarters upstairs. Here's all I'm saying. We're not exactly sure when the wise men showed up to the manger scene or when they showed up and found Jesus in this quote-unquote house. Here's the rest of the timeline. Uh, After the wise men come, uh, Joseph is at some point going to be warned in a dream to escape because Herod is going to give this order to kill the babies in Bethlehem. The family escapes. They go to Egypt. At some point, Herod dies, and then the family returns back to the promised land, and they settle in Nazareth. Now, thinking about the wise men, Let's just be honest, we're not entirely sure where they came from, and we're not entirely sure how many of them visited Israel. In Greek, 
The word here for wise men is magoi. I know sometimes we call them the magi, but the Greek word here is magoi, magoi. It's the same word you would find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. When you read about King Nebuchadnezzar and he's got all of these wise men advising him astrologers, dream interpreters, philosophers, educated people. In some sense, you could say Daniel was a magoi as he served under Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same word you'll find in the New Testament twice in the book of Acts. There are two magoi mentioned in the book of Acts. There's a man named Simon the magician, Simon the magoi, and then later there's a man named Elymas the sorcerer, Elymas the magoi. Both of these men apparently involved in witchcraft of some kind. We're just not exactly sure where these guys came from. Most likely, they came from the east, we know that. Most likely, this was a a Persian caste of priests. They would have been educated in things like philosophy. They would have studied the stars. They probably would have been trained in medicine. They, They were sort of Renaissance men. They just had a wide range of learning. The earliest tradition from church history says there was 12 of them. Later tradition says there was three of them, probably because three gifts were brought. Some people in church history even name them. They they give them these names, Gaspar and Melchior and Belshazzar. So you can take that. You can leave it. Here's the honest truth. We're not exactly how many of them came. We're not exactly sure where they came from. We know that they came looking for a king, which brings us to one more character we need to know, and that's Herod. Herod was the half-Jewish, quote-unquote, king who ruled Judea under the authority of the Romans. He's remembered as a great builder and a cruel, paranoid ruler. He was half-Jew, half-Edomite. In the year 47 B.C., he was appointed governor of Judea. And seven years later, in 40 B.C., he was allowed to take the title king. You understand that when Matthew refers to Herod as the king, it's clearly tongue-in-cheek. He clearly intends for you to understand this is king with an asterisk. Right? I've told you many times that there was a year a couple years ago when Hunter won our fantasy football league. We all suspected his wife picked his team, and so we called him the champion with an asterisk. It's not the real champion. Like, we'll call you the champ, but we all know you didn't really win. That's the kind of king Herod was. He was the king, but he was the king with an asterisk. People called him the king, but everyone really knew that Caesar was the king. That's who Herod is. Next week, we're going to talk about his cruelty. We remember him not as Herod the king with an asterisk. We remember him today as Herod the Great. He embarked on many, many really remarkable construction projects, building projects, including the temple in Jerusalem. So we remember him as Herod the Great. Now, look at the text. All we're going to do is read the passage, and we're going to think about what Matthew is saying to us, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, as we read about the visit of the Magoi, the visit of the the wise men. So look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. The Word of God says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we celebrate Christmas this morning, as we celebrate Christmas this week, as we read this passage that is familiar to us, Lord, we know about the wise men. We sing about the wise men who came from the east, the kings from the east, these magoi from the east. Lord, we know about the gifts that they brought We're familiar with the the details of this story, but Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see the truth about this child who was born. Help us to see the significance of Jesus, and Lord, help us to respond to Jesus this morning in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. When you study history, one of the things that you find occasionally from time to time is that certain eras, certain periods of history are often marked by a particular mood. We'll just use the word mood. What I mean is you can look back in history and you can find periods of time where wide cross-sections of people felt the same sort of thing. And I'll give you just a couple of examples from American history. After the Revolutionary War, you go back and you read what people were saying and how they were feeling. There was a a widespread sense of optimism. We had just won a remarkable war as underdogs, and there was this sort of feeling of we can do anything. If we can do that, we can do anything. Optimism was the mood. Fast forward and look at the Civil War. North versus South, and you read people who wrote during the Civil War in the midst of this conflict, there was a feeling of angst or a feeling of anxiety. There was just not a lot of certainty that the Union would survive, and there was just sort of a a tension in the air. You can look at the, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, something that certainly affected this part of the country. 
You find people just completely discouraged. People just tried one thing after another to change the situation. Nothing seemed to work. Everything that they did just made things worse, and people were discouraged. You can look at the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, or for most of us, a more recent memory would be the aftermath of September 11th. There was a sense of fear. There was this sort of sense leading up to those events that we're safe, we're secure, nobody can hurt us, nobody can harm us. And then all of a sudden we realized, well, none of those things are true. We're not as safe as we thought we were, and people were fearful. I'm not sure there's a church-appropriate word for the, the mood of 2020. Maybe it's just like a groan or a sigh or a, a looking at the clock to say, is this year over yet? Like, can we just get back to what we used to know, back to something that's more normal? Here's why I bring this up, periods of history where there was a, a mood in the air. Bible scholar William Barclay says this, just about the time Jesus was born, there was in the world a strange feeling of expectation, not just in Israel, but in the world, in all of the Roman Empire. There was this strange feeling of expectation of the coming of the king. It was strange because they already had a king. They had a, a Caesar, they had an emperor, they had a ruler, but there was this strange sense of expectation of the coming of a king, even the Roman historians knew about it, and they wrote about it in real time. Having a king, there was just this sense, both in Israel and in the wider Roman Empire, that a king was going to come. When you think about that sense of expectation, that mood of anticipation, it's not surprising that you read this story and you find that the wise men were looking for Jesus. Clearly, the story describes it that way. The wise men came looking for Jesus. Now, if you were here last week, I hope you have a little heartburn right now. I hope you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know. You said last week that the shepherds were not looking for Jesus. And you said last week that no one on their own goes looking for Jesus. Some of you went back and you read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and you found that what I said was true. They're almost identical. And they're quoted in the book of Romans chapter 3. Paul says this, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. No one goes looking for God on their own initiative. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now this morning I'm telling you that there was this sense of anticipation in these magoi from the east came looking for Jesus. I stand by that statement, but I'll qualify it with two more statements. These are on your notes. This looking was in response to number one, prophecy. Number two, this looking was guided by a star. It's not as if the shepherds went looking for Jesus at the manger scene on their own. The angels told them to go, and then they went. And it's not as if these wise men went looking for Jesus all on their own. They heard about a prophecy, and they were guided by a star. No one goes looking for Jesus on their own. Now, from human appearances, from an outsider's perspective, it may look like somebody goes looking for Jesus on their own. You may think about your testimony and you may say, you know, there was a time in my life where I started to seek after God. 
if you can pull back the picture of reality and look behind the scenes, what you'll find is that God is always, always, always the one who comes looking for us first. The shepherds weren't looking for Jesus. They did what the angels told them to do. These wise men didn't go looking for Jesus on their own. They were responding to a prophecy and they were following a star. And we just ought to stop and think about each of those, the prophecy and the star. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. The, the Magoi, the wise men, show up in Jerusalem. They're talking to Herod. And Herod assembles a group of wise men and he says, Hey, where is the Christ supposed to be born? Verse 5, Herod's... Uh, chief priests and scribes told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, and they quote the prophet Micah, the prophecy that Jake read at the beginning of our service. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Isn't it interesting that Herod didn't know the prophecy? Tells you something about Herod that he had to ask the question. Tells you what he didn't know. It's also interesting that the wise men apparently knew it and came looking for this ruler, for this king. How in the world would a group of Magoi from the east find out about a prophecy in one of the most obscure, one of the shortest Old Testament Books. It's not like they were Google searching. Where's the king going to be born? It's not like they could get on BibleDictionary.com and find this stuff. How would they get the book of Micah and find out about this prophecy in the first place? The honest answer is we're not entirely sure, but let me give you a little sanctified speculation. What about the exile of Israel? The exile of Israel. What about the period of Israel's history when Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah found themselves living in the east, in Assyria, in Babylon, in Persia. What do you think those people were doing during all those years they spent in exile? Well, the Bible tells us some of the things they were doing. They were advising Nebuchadnezzar. They were advising Xerxes. Uh, they were keeping God's people alive. But I think one of the things they were doing was talking to people about Scripture. Hey, I, I have this book. It's called Micah. It says a king's going to be born. Bethlehem, a very small city. There's going to be a king born there, somebody who's going to rule. They're talking about these things. They're talking about the scriptures. I think that's how God often works in our lives. You look back at the exile and on the surface you think God is punishing his people. He was, right? He was disciplining the nation of Israel for their idolatry. That wasn't all that he was doing. You look back in hindsight and you think about the important roles that Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, all these people played and you say, oh, it, it looks like God was doing something else at the same time. Behind the scenes, in hindsight, it looks like God was preparing the nations for the birth of a king. That's how God often works in our lives. 
If I pulled you aside after the service and I said, hey, tell me what God is doing in your life, you might have some sense of what God is doing in your life today. But I bet if I asked you that question in five years and I said, hey, you remember 2020? And you would sigh and you would groan. And I would say, what was God doing in your life in that period? I bet your answer wouldn't be the same. In real time, we think God is doing this in my life, but often in hindsight we realize, well, he was doing that. He was also doing something else. You see that in the exile. God was sending messianic prophecies east. These Magoi heard about the prophecies. They knew that a king was going to be born, and they were guided by a star. Look at verse 2. It says, we saw his star. Look at verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men, and he wanted to know what time the star appeared. Look at verse 9. It says, the, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. Apparently, it moved somehow, some way. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Some of the earliest church fathers said that this star was Halley's Comet. They knew about Halley's Comet way back then, and some of them said it was Halley's Comet. They followed the comet somehow, some way. One of the, the earliest astronomers, Kepler, Kepler had a theory about the star. Kepler, Johannes Kepler, said it was the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, which if you've been paying attention to the news, actually happens tomorrow. That was what Kepler thought. It was those two planets lining up in the sky, moving closer and closer together. I, I have friends who have shared with me books and some of them DVD documentaries, and they're very passionate about identifying this star. They think that they've gone back in the history of astronomy and they've figured out exactly what it was, and I've heard about five or six different answers, and some people are very convinced that they know exactly what this star was, and they date it to a certain period, and they describe how the wise men followed this star. My personal conviction is that the star is not all that important. And my personal conviction, if you want to know the truth, is that it wasn't Halley's Comet. I plan to watch Jupiter and Saturn tomorrow, but I don't think it was Jupiter and Saturn. My personal conviction when you read the story is that this star, quote-unquote star, was some sort of special, miraculous manifestation of the glory of God. I think, not everyone agrees with this, but I think it's what you would call in the Old Testament the Shekinah glory of God, special revelation or manifestation of God's glory. And I think that because the star guides them apparently to Jerusalem first. That's where they stop. And then they talk about this prophecy from Micah. And then the star moves in a seemingly special way, a miraculous way. And it stops over the house where the child was. Look, you pick your theory on the star. Here's what you don't get to pick. Who is Jesus? The star is relatively insignificant compared to, the, compared to the significance of who Jesus is. The wise men knew several things about Jesus. When you look at this story and you listen to what they say about Jesus and you consider the gifts that they brought Jesus, they knew several things about Jesus that we need to know. Number one, they knew Jesus was the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Verse 2. They walk into the presence of Herod, the asterisk, quote-unquote, king, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
verse 6, there's a discussion about Micah 5, 2, and they talk about a, a ruler who would come to Israel. They brought this king gold, a gift that people would have given to kings, to people in high positions of authority. They knew that Jesus was the king. Secondly, they knew that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. We talked about these two terms last week. Christ is an English word that comes from the Greek. Messiah is an English word that comes from the Hebrew. The two words mean the same thing in Greek or in Hebrew. The Christ or the Messiah is the anointed one. Loosely, you might say the chosen one or the promised one. Even Herod knew this. When they show up, verse 4, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired where the Christ was to be born. He maybe hadn't read Micah 5 too, but when they show up looking for a king, he understands, oh, you're talking about the Christ. You're talking about the Messiah, the chosen one. Thirdly, they knew that Jesus was the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel. Verse 6, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All those who knew the Old Testament would have thought Bethlehem, it's the city of David. David who was out keeping the sheep. David who was later known as the shepherd of Israel. David who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then now they're talking about Bethlehem. They're talking about a true king, another king king that had been born, a king who would be the shepherd. Fourthly, they knew Jesus was a high priest, the great high priest, you might say. Matthew tells us that they brought him, in addition to gold, frankincense. It was an incense that priests burned in temples all over the ancient Near East. They understood that they were coming to visit not just a king, but a priest of some kind, and they brought him a gift that you would have given to a priest. Last, they knew that Jesus was born as a child, meaning they weren't looking for an angel. They weren't looking for Superman. They were looking for a baby. And ironically, they were looking for a baby who was born to die. Every detail in this story points you forward. If you've read the New Testament, every detail points you forward and reminds you that this baby was born to die. Just consider these, these connections. Verse 4, where is he who was born king of the Jews? What did they write on the sign above Jesus' head as they hung him on the cross? He's the king of the Jews. There's a connection. There's a, a link in your mind that ought to go from the cradle to the cross. Look at verse 6. He's going to shepherd my people Israel. Who was the one who said that he was the good shepherd? It was Jesus. John chapter 10, and Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He doesn't go running when the enemy comes, but he lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And the Father's given him the charge that he can take it back up when the time is right. Verse 11, they bring this gift of frankincense for a priest, it reminds you of the sacrifice that Jesus would offer, not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but himself. Offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, they bring him myrrh. It's a strange gift. It would be the equivalent today of giving someone an urn for Christmas. 
It was a gift associated with death. They used myrrh to wrap dead bodies so that the smell didn't overwhelm you at the burial. In fact, John chapter 19 says that when Jesus was buried, they wrapped him up with 75 pounds of myrrh. All these details in this story reminding you and reminding me this child, this baby, was born to die. That's why it's so fitting at Christmas that we stop together this morning and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We think about who Jesus is. Look at this list. He's the king. He's the Christ. He's the shepherd. He's the high priest. He's the child who was born to die. This morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe these things about Jesus, You've given your life to be a follower of Jesus. We invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you do not believe in Jesus, you have never given your life to Christ, you've not followed through with believer's baptism as a sign of your conversion, we ask that you not take the elements. We're going to share with you in just a moment. We're not done with the message. We're going to share with you how you can respond to Jesus this morning. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. We're going to start with the bread. We're going to read a passage from the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and verse 25. Scripture says this, he himself bore our sins in his body. The bread reminds us of the body of Christ. He, He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I'm going to take the cup. I'm going to read this time, still in 1 Peter, this time chapter 1. Verse 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The cup reminds us of the blood of Christ. They're like a lamb without blemish or spot. He ransomed us. We take the cup. Now, We're not quite done with the passage. If you'll stay in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to talk about how we ought to respond to Jesus. This is true for all of us. This is true for those of us who have trusted in Jesus and are following Jesus. This is true for those of you who maybe have never made the commitment or the decision to follow Jesus. The wise men show us how we ought to respond to Jesus. First, I want to give you two examples not to follow. First is that of Herod. Herod tried to destroy Jesus. We're going to talk about this more next week. You can look in the text at verse 4. The wise men show up and Herod assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 3, if you look at verse 3, says, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. Was troubled. Literally, it could be translated, he was in turmoil. 
Literally, it could be translated, he was filled with terror. Herod understood that there could only be one king. He knew that he was king with an asterisk anyways, but he certainly knew there couldn't be two kings of the Jews. There can only be one true king. He looked at Jesus and he saw him as a threat. It's a sad state on our culture that we often don't see Jesus as a threat to our lives or our freedom. You understand, Jesus is the king. There's not room for two of you to sit on the throne. Jesus doesn't want to share the throne with you. Jesus doesn't want to be your co-pilot through life. There's one king. You can recognize him, or you can be filled with turmoil and terror when you hear that Jesus Christ wants to reign and rule over your life, and you can set yourself to oppose Jesus. That's what Herod did. Secondly, another bad example, the chief priests and the scribes were apparently indifferent to Jesus. Maybe the most shocking part of the whole passage, the chief priests and the scribes, verse 4, they're asked where the Christ was to be born, verse 5, they give the right answer. Give them credit. They pull a prophecy out of an obscure minor prophet book. They don't have to go digging and looking. They know Micah 5.2 settles that question. He's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Herod takes that information and he opposes Jesus. What did the wise men or, excuse me, the, the scribes and the chief priests do with that information? Apparently nothing at this point. I guess they went back to their books, back to their Bible studies. If I told you that you could walk five miles to see Jesus the Christ. If I said, look, we're going to leave here, we're going to go down university, we're going to loop around UTPB, we're going to trek around the mall, we're going to come back up Tanglewood, and if you walk that walk, you get to see the Messiah. Would you be willing to walk that far to see Jesus? That's about how far it was from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, about five and a half miles. That's it. It wasn't like they had to pack a bag. They just had to go see. They were busy. I suppose, Bible studies to do, rules to memorize, busy people. We're busy people, aren't we? So holidays get busy. You got a lot of things to think about during the holidays. Then it's a new year. You got a lot of stuff to think about at the beginning of a new year. Maybe you set some goals and some resolutions and you want to be committed to those and hopefully sometime next year we quit groaning and sighing and we get on with some semblance of normal life. You're going to be busy. Things get to open back up and go back a little bit more towards normal. I mean, we're busy people, right? It's all it takes to be indifferent to Jesus. It's just a little bit of busyness. Apparently, the scribes and the chief priests were just too busy. Thirdly, how do we respond to Jesus? The wise men worship Jesus. They worship Jesus. I put a couple of verses up on the screen. I just want you to look at these. Last week, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And in our passage this morning, Matthew 2.10, says that when the, they saw the star, when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, Verse 2, they show up to Herod and they say, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. 
We've come to rejoice over him, to celebrate who he is and what he's come to accomplish. Look what we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. They went into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. That's how you ought to respond to Jesus. Not with, I'll do it later because I'm busy now. Not with, I don't want you to reign and rule over my life. But with worship. Acknowledging that he's the king. He's the Christ. He's the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He's the child who was born to die. Let's pray together.